Today's message is week 10 in the series Return of the King in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Corey Schmilkofer is speaking today and is covering 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 which says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as other, others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. How we doing, Change Point? Good, good. That's exciting. Um, for those of you who, you guys can have a seat. <clears throat> um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Corey Schmittelkofer. I lead the young adult group here with my wife, Erin. Um, if we have not had a chance to connect with you and meet you, we would love to get to know you after the service. So um, come and say hi to us, and, and, and we'll get to connect with you and get to know you then. Um, you know, this last week I received a letter from Eric Gonzalez. Um, and Eric is a, a brother of ours here at Change Point. He's sitting right here. And um, he wrote me this letter in order to kind of process some of the feelings that he was having around a friend of his who was, um, who's, who's battling brain four, uh, sorry, stage four brain cancer. And um, I just, I feel like right now is a time that's fitting for us to seek the Lord on behalf of Bob and his wife, Sherry, and, and really seek the Lord on their behalf. And, and also to just have the Lord bless this time that we have today. So let us pray. Father, we are um, we are so in need of your presence here today. We know that you have not um, ignored our cries. We know that you hear us. Father, we know that you are in control of all things. Um, and that your will will be done, but um, we want to seek you on behalf of Bob and on behalf of Sherry, his wife, and, and just ask that you would heal him because we know that cancer is not of you. We know that it's not of you, and so, Father, we also ask that today um, that you would do something extraordinary in this room. How can we expect anything less, Father, from an extraordinary God? And so let your words be my words and your thoughts be my thoughts. Remove me, Father, and let you be heard. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I wonder how often that we really um, think about Christ's return. How often do we really think about the return of our king? 
And I'm, I'm not talking about just an intellectual acknowledgement of his return, but with, with real serious expectation. How often do we gaze upon the return of our Lord with this future hope of salvation when all things will be made new? You know, I must confess that this last week for myself um, has really helped to shape and mold my own um, heart on this topic of Christ's return. So often I have fallen short in this area and and in Christ himself, he thought that, that the promise and certainty of his return held tremendous implica- implications for, for life now and, and life to come. You see, Jesus ministered to his disciples and the crowds, and, and he wove stories about wedding feasts and virgins and lamp oil and servants and fig trees, all with this pointed warning about the need to be ready when he returns. And just as Jesus' earthly life forced people to points of decisions, his return will reveal the course that those decisions took. And as Pastor Greg spoke on last week, he asked one question, really. Will we be ready? Will we be ready when the Lord returns? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And so in this final chapter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul revisits Christ's warnings by by reminding the church in Thessalonica that they should not be slumbering, that sleep is not the position of readiness, right? It belongs to the night, that time of dim perceptions when we quit our work, when we take it easy and we resist everything around us. You see, it can be so easy to sleep in the comforts of this world. And you see, nobody knows when Christ will return. Nobody really knows when he will return. It is a secret that's kept with God, but he is coming back. How many believe that, that he is coming back? Amen. Amen. And in our passage today, we're going to talk about what that really means for the believer and for the unbeliever. But the most importantly, we're going to talk about, about what the future coming of Christ means for us, for believers, and our future hope of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, please open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It reads this, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, we have no need to have, you have no need to have anything written to you. You see, although Paul was still writing concerning the coming of Christ, he kind of shifts his focus away from, from how the Lord will return, which is what Pastor Greg's preached on last week, um, to, to what the second coming of Christ would actually mean for those of us who are believers and also for those, of those, those, of, uh, those who are unbelievers, for those in the light and for those in the darkness, for those who are dead and for those who are alive. Paul begins by saying about the times and seasons, brothers, we have no need to write to you. Why would Paul say that he has no need to write to them concerning this? 
In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, we find the only other use of this language that Paul uses here, the times and seasons. And Jesus' disciples ask him, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says to his disciples, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And again, in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Listen, the Lord is coming back, and nobody knows the times or the seasons in which this will happen. But Paul is saying here, there is no need for me to write to you concerning the exact time and the exact hour that Christ will return, because we simply just do not know. But what we do know is that the Lord will return, and he will return like a thief in the night, like labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says this, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. You see, Paul declares here that the Lord is going to return like a thief in the night. And and what Paul is doing here is he's referring back to uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 39 and 40, where Jesus says, But know this, that that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect." The suddenness and surprise of Christ's return was well understood by the church in Thessalonica. And you see, a thief does not call up in the middle of the night and ask, hey, can I stop by at 2.30 in the morning? I'm going to break into your house. No, the thief just comes. He just comes. And, And when we are in the comfort of our own beds, when we are least expecting it, That's when he comes. And you see, that's what Paul is saying here to the church in Thessalonica. He's saying, listen, we have no need to write to you concerning the times and seasons in which he will come because we do not know. But what we do know is that the Lord is going to return and he's going to return like a thief in the night when you least expect it. So the question is, is when he does return like a thief in the night, will we be ready? Will we be ready? Verse 3 says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. You see, this seems so um, counterintuitive to what we think about um, as it kind of ushers in the return of the Lord, right? Like so often we think because so many bad things are happening in the world, because sin is consuming people around us, that that's when the Lord is going to return to restore all things new. But what Paul is saying here is, no, it's even worse than that. Even worse than sinfulness is when we are sitting there saying that there's peace and security, as if there is no God, as if there is no worries. And so Paul expands here on the return of Christ by using this imagery of a pregnant woman expecting labor pains. Just when everyone is thinking things are fine, when no one seems worried or concerned, and when life is going well, that is when Christ will appear. You see, Christ is going to suddenly appear like a thief in night and unexpectedly like a mother going into labor. 
And the contrast that we see in this verse holds serious implications. He says, while people are saying there's peace and security, destruction is actually what is taking place. And so those who will be caught by surprise are those who do not believe in the goodness of Christ. Right, The great masses of people throughout the world who have not accepted Christ as their Savior. You see, this means that every single family member, every single friend, every single person that we know that has rejected the sacrifice of Christ that is coming, the result will be destruction. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Listen to the implications that that has for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to the unsaved world. There is no second chance. There is no going back. It's sudden destruction. And how will they believe if they do not hear about the goodness of God? Paul goes on in Romans 10, 14 to say, How then will they call on him, on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? There's destruction that is going to come for the unbelieving world. How are they to hear unless someone is preaching and that someone has got to be us? It has got to be us. Listen, our lack of urgency to share the gospel with unbelievers shows our lack of understanding of the nature of destruction that will come on the day of the Lord. That is truth. That our lack of urgency to share the gospel to the unbelieving world is a result of our understanding of the destruction that's going to come for them. We have to take this seriously, this sharing of the gospel with the unbelieving world. Because Christ the judge, Christ the judge is going to return when he comes back. But listen, there is good news, okay? That's, that's the bad news. That's the bad news. But there is good news. There's really, really good news. And I think I say that every single time that I'm up here. But the fact is, is that there is good news, and the good news is for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, there is no destruction. There is no destruction. We are children of the light. Because of what Christ has done for us, let me say that again, because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, our commitment to him is a commitment to his light. It's a commitment to his light, a lifestyle that is just the opposite of moral darkness. Verse 4. It says this, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. And so what Paul does is he just goes through the fact that the Lord is going to return, 
And that there are going to be people that are surprised by this return. That there is going to be destruction as the result. But Paul here in verse 4 says, But you, brothers, you will not be surprised. Paul begins here to discuss here the implications of Christ's return for the believing world. To the unbeliever, Jesus will come like a thief in the night. But to the believer... His return will come as no surprise, nor will he come like a robber who destroys. It'll be a glorious day of redemption and resurrection and and when we're taken to be with the Lord. And those who believe are not in darkness. You see, we who believe will never have to spend a day separated from the presence of the Lord. Ever. And we know this because if we look back to last week's passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, it says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. You see, this is the good news is that we will never be separated from the love of Christ Jesus. Biblically, darkness Um, typically refers to this moral and spiritual blindness, disobedience, and separation. But, But this sphere of darkness is where the unbelieving world lives. All of us, apart from Christ, live in that sphere of darkness. But Paul's contrast here is sharp. He says, you, the Thessalonians, and all of us for that matter, are not living in unbelief or spiritual darkness or moral decay. We're living in the light. You see, in Colossians 1.3, I love this verse. Paul says this, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And for us as believers, Christ's coming is nothing to fear. We are not in the darkness for that day to surprise us like a thief. As Christians, we are supposed to be different. As Christians, we're supposed to be different. You see, we are children of the light. We're children of the day. And if we look at verse 5, it says, For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So Paul, having just said what we are not as Christians, he now goes into what we are as Christians. And the contrast is bold and it's unmistakable. He says, unlike an unbeliever, a Christian is in relationship with the light, with God and with Christ. And not only that, but the Christian lives in moral and spiritual enlightenment because of his relationship with God. Our life and our understanding should be affected greatly by our faith in Christ. All our life should be affected greatly by our faith in Christ. In every area, in everything that we do, we should not be different in one place than we are in another. We should always be in the light. You see, the Bible says in 1 John 1.5 that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Again, Christ says in John 8.18, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And finally, in Matthew 5.14, Jesus says, You, us, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
So God the Father, he is light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then he goes on to say, no, you are the light of the world as well. As I leave, I give that to you. And so we are children of the light, children of the day. And because we are children of the Most High God and we bear the image of Christ, we therefore are children of light. You see, there can be no confusion here. The Christian is different in life and destiny from the unbelieving world, period. See, God's actions in the past specifically in Christ, should affect the way we live today. And God's actions in the future, the return of Christ, should shape everything that we do right now. Verse 6, it says this, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. See, being in the light having been rescued from the darkness, looking to a future with God and not being subject to his wrath, these should make a difference in how we live right now. There should be no way that we can come in contact with the power and the spirit of the living God and remain the same. Excuse me, my mouth is really dry. Mm. Listen, Paul urges the church in Thessalonica here, let us not be like the unbelieving world who are asleep. We are to be alert. We're to be ready. We're to be self-controlled. And to be alert is the opposite of being asleep. You see, A person who is unaware, who is not sensitive to the life around him, to the spirit, he is asleep. He is morally and spiritually dead. But let us not sleep. Let us keep awake and be aware. Verse 7 goes on to say, For those of us who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. And so here in this verse, Paul is going to reflect back to this analogy of night and day. He has already defined those outside of Christ as being of the night and those whose faith in Christ as being a part of the day. But remembering that Christians are of the day, he emphasized the need for readiness and alertness by reminding the church, by reminding the church that sleepiness and drunkenness belong to habits of the night. You see, There is absolutely no way that we can be alert and thinking on the things of God while participating and indulging in self-gratification and the things of the flesh. In this passage, namely, Paul says drunkenness. And so, to say that again, there's no way that we can be alert and thinking on the things of God if we are participating and indulging in the self-gratification of the flesh, namely being drunk. These things should not characterize those of us who are in the day, who are in the light. We are to be different as Christians. You see, and if, if we are content to remain in the darkness If we are content to remain in the darkness, we will find ourselves owned by the darkness. John Stott puts it this way. 
He says, sleep indicates carelessness or indifference to spiritual things. It means being in a condition in which one is unaware, unconscious of what is happening, especially in the realm of spiritual realities. Being drunk and unconscious to the spiritual things is the exact opposite of what defines the Christian responsibility to remain alert and watchful. It's so hard, like I was talking with Pastor Greg this week, and as I think, um, because many of you know my past, I, I constantly tend to refer to this, this state of drunkenness um, as something that is extremely dark and that will consume us, and this is true. This is very true, but what Paul is doing in this passage, he's not necessarily just talking about drinking or being drunk. What he's doing through this whole process is saying, listen, there is a light of light, there is a life of light, and there is a life of darkness. There is a realm of spirituality, and there is a realm of death. And so he uses this language to contrast this night and the day and this drunkenness and sober to contrast light and darkness. That's what he's doing here. Moving on to verse 8, it says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. In verse 8, Paul sums up this discussion now of being asleep and walking in darkness by using this language of being dressed for battle. You see, when we are, when we are walking in the things of this world, when we're walking in darkness, when we're unaware of the spiritual things that are happening around us, it's a state of stupor, really. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, be dressed for battle. And so he says we have to put on the breastplate of faith and love. Faith and love, like the breastplate, protect our hearts. You see, faith guards us within, keeping us close with relationship with Christ. And, and love guards our hearts and our outward expression of the love of Christ to the world that is dying. Along with this, we are to keep on the helmet the helmet of the hope of salvation. You see, our, our head is the center of all of our thoughts. It processes our thoughts and emotions. It analyzes life, and the head controls the certainty of our salvation. You see, and in the Christian walk of life, hope is not some um, wishful thinking. Hope is certainty. The hope of the return of Christ is certain in the life of a Christian. And Christ will come, and we will live with him forever. And of this, of this, we should be certain. You see, this reality guards us in times of persecution and temptations and weariness, that when we think of our future hope with Christ, that really combats so much of the worldly battles, right? It's... This passage here is like a real-life application of, of Romans 8.18 where he says the, the troubles that you are experiencing at this present time are nothing worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. And so this hope of salvation is really um, 
a weapon that stands against all the persecutions and temptations and the weariness and the dangers that come in contact with in this broken world. And this is why I believe that Paul constantly in the letter to the Thessalonians refers to the return of Christ. Back to the return of Christ. Every single chapter in this letter, he talks about the return of Christ. Every single one of them. And this is why I believe that is. We remember as we've went through this study, the church in Thessalonica was experienced great deals of persecution. They were suffering and they were struggling. Paul was only there for about three weeks and he was, he was pushed out by people who were trying to kill them. And so now you have this young church. You have this young church who can't really, um, they're, they're probably thinking in their heads, do we continue walking with this Lord even though we're going to be persecuted and, and have the chance of being murdered? And so Paul, what he's doing when he's writing back to them is he's saying, listen, do not focus on the things of this world. There is a future hope that's coming when we're set free from all of this. See, there's, there's no greater weapon than to walk in a genuine faith in the Lord, to love others with the love of Christ, and to continuously think about the future hope and salvation when Christ returns to take us home with him. Verse 9. Verse 9 says this. It says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I believe that this verse right here and the following verses are the keys to this whole passage. This is the hope of our salvation, that apart from Christ there is no salvation. Apart from Christ there is no light. Apart from Christ, we're walking in darkness and drunkenness, every single one of us apart from Christ. But for us, for us as believers, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation is certain. You see, there, there, there can be no waver on, wavering on this issue. God appointed or destined us to gain salvation, and he has offered that to us in his son, Jesus. You see, I think that it's so easy to look at this passage and make it about morality and outward conformity, right? It's so easy to say, listen, don't be like them. Do not go get drunk. Do not walk in the darkness. No, walk in the light. Do not do that. You need to do this. Right? It's so easy to do that, but the reality is, is that it's a futile attempt to try to climb our way into heaven without Christ. Outward acts of obedience are not what make us right in the eyes of God. It is not what we do, but what Christ has already done. Our salvation is completely dependent on Jesus Christ. And that's it. We cannot climb our way into heaven. You see, this is why the symbol of Christianity is a cross and it's not a ladder. Because we need Jesus in order to be right in the eyes of God. He is our hope of salvation. We can't climb our way into it. Verses 9 and 10, it reads this. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10. 
who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The life of the believer is secure, it's determined, it's safe in the hands of God. Christ died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live together with him. Paul's use of the word asleep here, um, it's different than the, the word that he's used earlier on in this passage. Earlier on, he was talking about being awake and being asleep in terms of morality, in terms of, in terms of a moral life. But here, Paul is talking about a physical death. And so ultimately what Paul is saying here, he's saying, listen, if we are believers in Christ, whether we are dead or whether we are alive, we will always be with the Lord. For the believer in Christ, there is no death. There is no death. Christ defeated sin when he died on the cross, and he defeated death when he rose from the grave. Therefore, what Paul says, whether we are dead or whether we are alive, we will always be with the Lord. And in closing, Paul ends with this in verse 11. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And so what Paul is really saying here, what he's really saying here is he's saying, listen, you cannot do it alone. He's saying, we cannot do this thing alone. See, this assurance of salvation, this transformation, it should encourage us. And, and as we are encouraged, we should encourage and love one another. It is important to remind each other of our future hopes so that we do not grow weary and lose heart. So important. And all throughout this letter, Paul has given this same exhortation over and over and over again. He says, encourage one another, love one another, build one another up. And so what I love really about this verse, though, is that Paul takes it a step further than just to encourage one another. He says, build one another up. And as we all know, building something, it takes labor. It takes investment. It takes time. It takes sacrifice. And so he's not just saying, listen, encourage one another with your mouths. But he's saying, no, labor for one another. Encourage one another. Invest time in one another. Sacrifice for one another. It's more than just encouraging one another. It takes action. And so here's the thing. The Lord is coming back. He is coming back. We understand that. And for some of us, this is a day of resurrection. This is a day of, of, of life. And for the unbelieving world, this is a day of destruction and judgment. And I think that we all need to take this seriously as we faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Christ is the focal point of this whole passage. I mean, he's the focal point of all life and all scripture for that matter. And I started this message off talking about um, Eric Gonzalez, who wrote me this letter this week about a friend with stage four brain cancer. And I wanted to read a part of this letter to you. I think it really speaks to this passage. But it says this. This is Eric writing. He says, last week, as I was preparing for my trip to Oklahoma City, I learned that Bob has type 4 brain cancer. He underwent a biopsy, which has left him with some paralysis and a bit of speech impediment. 
Fortunately, I'm able to see him while I'm in Oklahoma City this week. And tonight, as I was sitting in the hospital waiting room, I was wondering what I would say for a brother who is fighting for his life and still in the prime of his life. The only thing that came to my mind was that verse in Philippians 1 where Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But that seems too trite when someone is battling cancer. So as I go into his darkened hospital room, Bob is happy to see me. And through a raspy and hoarse voice, he asks about Liz and the kids. And I show him pictures of Jake and my baby boy. He says he loves seeing the kids and is grateful, and I ask him, how is he doing? Bob's t Bob tells me that he has peace. It's been hard. He has a huge scar with staples on his half-shaved head. He said watching his wife's reaction to the cancer news was the hardest part so far. Yet he still has peace and feels the Lord near him. I could feel the Lord's presence as he spoke those words. Then shortly after that, he looks me in my face and he says, I see Jesus in you, Eric, and it's a blessing to me. I see Jesus in your smile. I see Jesus in your eyes. I see Jesus in your face. What a blessing to see Jesus in you and your family. I was thrown back by that. In that moment, I thought about the sinful things I've done, and yet he sees Jesus on me. Then it occurs to me that this is how God sees us. All the stupid things I've done, all the junk, all the hurt, all the sin I've done, and God looks at my face and he sees Jesus in my face. It's not about my righteousness. It's about Jesus' righteousness. I'm covered by Jesus, and that's what the Lord sees in me. Peter, you can bring your team up. You see, as I, as I was reading this letter and I'm sitting there just, I'm, I'm in tears and I'm thinking to myself that in, in light of this passage that I've been working through all week, the only thing that came to my mind is that Bob understands the hope of salvation. <laughs> that Eric understands that it's not about his righteousness and moral perfection, it's about Christ's. On the day of the Lord, when we are asked to give an account, our response will not be, listen, I lived in the light. I did not drink. I did not do that. I did not do this. No, all we will be able to say is that Christ paid for me. All we can say is that we stand in the righteousness of Christ and that Christ is our only hope. Randy Alcorn says it like this. In the day that we stand before our master and maker, it will not matter how many people on earth knew our name, how many called us great, and how many considered us fools. It will not matter whether schools or hospitals were named after us, whether our estate was large or small, whether our funeral had 10,000 or no one. What will matter is one thing and one thing only. Whose righteousness do we stand in? Our own self-righteousness or the righteousness of Christ? You see, in light of this passage right here, it is Christ that separates us from light and darkness. It's Christ that separates us from life and death. 
It is Christ that sets, separates us from deliverance and destruction on the day of the Lord. Christ is the hope of our salvation, and that is it alone. Let us pray. Father, we know that it is only you who knows that time and the season in which you will send your son back to claim us. We are so thankful, Father, that our salvation is not dependent on us. But it is solely your doing. It is your work. Father, for those who are here today who might be walking along the fence, might be questioning all of this that's taking place, this, this, this light and this darkness and this, this destruction that comes on the day of the Lord, for those who are here who do not know Christ, I pray for them, Father. I pray right now that you would work in their hearts, that you would, that you would convict them, that you would show them that you are good, that you are loving, that you are gracious, that you are kind, that you are great, that you offer us life. We thank you, Father, that you have not destined us for wrath, but salvation in your son, Jesus. It's all about Jesus, Father. We thank you for your love and for your grace, for most importantly, for the death of your son, Jesus, who is the sacrifice for all of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.